The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus, award-winning designer, artist, and educator. Lisa Nunnemaker is a master at teaching others how to communicate garden design and landscape graphic ideas on paper. Her website, papergardenworkshop.com, is a fun and spirited place to begin learning new, amazing drawing and design techniques. Lisa teaches her beautiful illustration skills on her website and in the Department of Horticulture at Iowa State University. To top it off, Lisa also holds degrees in landscape architecture, is registered in the state of Iowa, and formerly served on the Association of Professional Landscape Designers National Board of Directors. This is episode 22. Communicating your garden ideas on paper with Lisa Nunnemaker on the Garden Question Podcast. We'll be with Lisa right after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Lisa, how do you take the overwhelming out of creating a garden or landscape design? That is such a great question. I know in general, I try to approach things in step-by-step chunks and pieces. And I know with garden design in particular, I feel like the basic unit of garden design is a garden room. I think that's such a great way to start and explain that to people. So instead of thinking of this large, humongous space and being overwhelmed with what to do with it, I try to encourage people to think about rooms instead. So whether it's one large room or multiple rooms and what their functions are. And the next question might be, well, how do I create these rooms? And there's lots of ways you can create rooms. There's a whole design process around that. One of my favorite ways to create the structure or the lines of rooms and the outside edges of those rooms is to use a great technique called lines of force. What this is, is you basically pull lines off the architecture of your house. You create a grid in plan view and and plan view, of course, is from the sky looking down, you pull lines off your house, you know, whether it's windows or doors or the edges of the building, or maybe where a building juts out a little bit, and you create this really cool grid. And then you can use the lines of that grid to start creating the edges of your garden room. It's an awesome technique. And it's amazing what you can do with that. When I first started drawing landscape designs, it was by hand. And now most of my designs I do digitally. Which do you prefer hand drawing or digital drawing? (laughs) I get this question a lot. And I will tell you that I actually enjoy both equally, but I do feel it's important to learn hand drawing techniques. So when you use the computer or digital drafting, you use the same techniques for both. So things like line weights, in adding depth are just as important in the computer. So usually the beginning of my design process is hand-drawn. 
towards the end, I will often pull things into the computer. And the main reason why the computer is so great is because when you make changes for a client, it's a lot easier to change them and make updates on the computer. But with that said, you can also make changes on hand drawing if it's in pencils. I know some people feel comfortable with more than the one over the other. I do use both equally because I feel like the beginning of the design process really needs to be in pencil. I feel like it's more fluid. Towards the end, I like to pull it into the computer and start manipulating it that way. So yeah, I actually don't have a favorite. I actually love both. What tools do I need to begin putting my design ideas on paper? To start designing, I always encourage people to use tracing paper, not just tracing paper in a pad, but I think tracing paper on a roll is actually more freeing. I've learned with my own students, when you have sheets of tracing paper, that they actually are scared to use them because they don't want to waste the paper. But when you have a roll of tracing paper, it's more freeing. You can go through multiple ideas. What I like to encourage people to do is create a base map first. What that is, is basically your site in plan view, again, looking from the sky down. And that's property lines at the, the top of your house, the garage, uh, your the yard, the driveway. And then I throw tracing paper over that. And just, just really quick, the base map can be drawn. It could be a drawing that you might have from when you constructed your house. It could be a Google Earth map if you're lucky enough to be able to see through the trees, if you have trees. I just throw tracing paper on top and start sketching ideas. I encourage my students in particular to not focus on one idea for too long. I actually tell them, try to go through lots of sheets of paper in only 15 minutes. Just kind of explore ideas, be really rough. Nothing has to be perfect. Just tracing paper and a pencil really are the best ways to start drawing and to be free about it. I discourage starting on the computer. When you start on the computer in terms of conceptual ideas, I feel it's very inhibiting. With pencil drawings, you can go through much quicker and then you can move it to the computer later for those that are actually drafting digitally. Is that role of tracing paper, is that still called trash? <laughs> Yeah, some people call it trash. Some people call it trace. Some people call it bumwad. <laughs> so I'll let you use what you want on this podcast. <laughs> You're not afraid to use trash then. You just go rolling it out and exploring ideas. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In its simplest form, you have pencil on paper, dark gray lead on white papers. How do you distinguish one plant from another or one element from another in your drawings? What were we just talking about with these conceptual ideas? Mm -hmm. I can do that in marker and pencil or whatever it might be. When I start drawing it as a final drawing, that's when I start to delineate between objects. That can happen on tracing paper also, or it can happen on vellum. Vellum is a fancier tracing paper that's a little more high quality. Either way, when you start to draw that final drawing, I start to delineate really the biggest thing that I use is line weight. Mm -hmm. What line weights are, are making sure that you have different thicknesses of lines when you draw your final drawing. I do this in ink. But the original drawing is always in pencil. So I'll lay everything out in pencil. If you have line weight, I, mean, I can't stress this enough. That is 
the secret to a great drawing. And that's what delineates your objects. That's what gives your drawing depth. So basically, the rule of thumb is in plan view, anything closer to you is a thicker line and anything farthest away is a thinner line. So canopy trees would be a thick line. Paving details would be the thinnest line that you can create. I use ink pens. Some people use pencil, but I like to use ink. That's what I teach typically. The other ways too that you can adapt, I actually use shadows also shadows on any three-dimensional object on the ground is crazy. Also, I use a gray marker for ground shadows and that gives amazing depth and it delineates objects from each other. The other thing I love doing is adding contrast to my drawings, which is basically having blacks and whites. I add my blacks or my darks in things like bed areas. A lot of people will add texture to the plants themselves. I don't do that. I do the texture around the plants in the planting bed. This includes plant symbols and ground covers. I never put the texture on the plant. I put it around the plant. And that's what makes your plant symbols pop and stand out by adding that contrast around them versus on them. So that's probably one of the, the biggest things that I do differently than other people. I, I switch that that contrast. Hopefully that makes sense. It makes sense to me, but I'm a designer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's, it's so much easier when it's visual, but but really in the end, it's that line weight. The line weights are the, mm -hmm. the key to all of that. It's crazy how that works. How do you handle overlays? You've got a tree canopy and then you've got maybe some shrubs under there and then you've got ground covers. And how do you handle the multiple symbols that you've got going, but then put the texture on the outside of all those symbols? I love this question. This is a great question. And there's a couple of guidelines that I follow. When it's a tree, basically, if something's in the sky above your head, I would show texture below it. If there are shrubs or perennials on the ground, I do not show texture below them. So now let's layer the shrubs underneath the tree. You would see the trees and the perennials under the tree but I would only show the texture around the the shrubs and the perennials. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm -hmm. if anything's above your head, like a canopy tree, I'll just say that again. Okay. You would show other plants underneath it and you would show any texture only around trees and perennials. So if there's an empty bed under a tree, you would show the texture in the bed. If there's shrubs and perennials under a tree, you would show the shrubs and perennials, and then you would only show any kind of texture around the shrubs and the perennials. This is something that you that definitely would help with a visual. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you this, though. I, one thing I always tell my students, when you have one tree layering over another tree or another plant material... Mm -hmm. You never, ever want to hide what's happening under the tree that's overlapping something else. Because landscape graphics or garden graphics is our communication tool. It's a visual communication tool to someone installing it. Now, it could be ourselves if we're the home gardener. We could be drawing it for a client. If we're drawing it for a client or a contractor, you always want to make sure your plants that are overlapping other plants are never hiding something. So you always show all the plants, whether they're being overlapped or not. And the, the texture and the, I call it hatching, I guess, just goes around the plants. You never want to, you never want to hide anything. Mm -hmm. In the bigger scheme of things, it's always about, okay, if I'm going to give this to somebody else, what would be clear and make sense? Yeah. That's what I always ask myself. 
we're communicating ideas that will be implemented in reality. You got to be clear in the communication. That's what I'm understanding from what you're saying. Right. Those upper canopy plants have got to be transparent to anything below them. That is correct. And actually, one of my guidelines I use with color Mm -hmm. is I actually don't add color to canopy trees. If there's if there is something underneath them that I need to see, even if it's a bedline, I don't render it because if the color will hide something, Mm -hmm. then I just don't go there. To me, the ground plane is the most important part. So if you're going to cover the ground plane, you want to make sure the ground plane can be seen. Explain ground plane. The ground plane is the floor of the garden, what we walk on. That's a great question. So that's what we walk on. But I always want to make sure that the surface that we walk on, the bottom part of the garden, the horizontal plane is on the ground is actually seen. We don't want to hide that because that's where a lot of the details are happening in a garden. Do you want to do every one of these designs in scale or are you just sketching ideas or how does that come about? When I'm doing conceptual drawings, if I'm using a base map to scale, then they're kind of close, but they don't have to be in a conceptual. I just designed our garden last summer. I took photos from the second story window and I was sketching over those and they were not to scale. They just were helping me get the general idea of how things might fit in the yard. Mm -hmm. But when I get to the hardcore drawing my garden for either myself or somebody else, the final drawing, I always draw it to scale. Well, that helps on estimates of the different materials. Exactly, exactly. And for us, you know, we were creating a dining area. I knew I had to fit a certain size table in there, and I knew we were going to have an area for a fire pit and chairs. So drawing it to scale, of course, is incredibly important. So you can make sure you're making it the size that you need it for the function that you're going to use it for. Plant graphics. I've often seen a plus mark or a circle within a plant symbol or an X or a dot, or what do they represent? Those represent whether a plant is proposed, if it's existing, or if it's going to be removed from the site. I will tell you, this is a funny story. I learned it one way in college. So how I learned it, and then I'll tell you more stories, uh, is that a plus sign, and I say plus, not X. I'm I'm really picky about that in my classes. I want it to look like a plus. A plus is proposed. So to me, it's plus one. So you're adding a plant. And then a dot is existing. And the nice thing about using a dot for existing is you can make that dot bigger. So if you have a large tree that has a three foot diameter trunk, you can make that dot if you want as large as the trunk. You don't have to, but sometimes it's nice if it's a large tree because there's no point in designing in a space that's being taken up by a large tree. The X means that it's going to be removed. I don't use X's very often because I don't do a removal plan. I just don't include those plants in there, but you might have a removal plan. And if you do, you can put X's on Mm -hmm. that one. This is how I teach my students. And this is how I was taught in college. And the story is, is that one of my students worked with one of my friends in Arizona, a great landscape designer there. She calls me up one day and she said, they do it opposite here. I don't understand. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And then I started going back through all my books. I'm like, where did I learn this from? Of course, the instructors taught us that, but I'm like, I must have learned it in a book. And I realized there is no book that that I can find that specifically says you need to do it this way. So it sounds like no matter where you are in the country, we all do it differently. So what I always tell people now is it doesn't matter what system you use as long as you're consistent and you're clear. So if you're handing it over to a client or a contractor, 
you just need to let them know what the plus means and what the what the dot means because some people might do it opposite of me. Now, of course, all my students will do it my way. I know in the Midwest, we mostly do it the way I just explained it with the plus being the plus one, which is proposed. I know definitely in the other parts of the country that people do it differently. How do you do it? I'm curious now. It used to. I mean, this is in my ignorance. I used to <laughs> do X's for everything. I realized I was not doing that correctly. I needed to be more clear. So I started doing pluses for everything added, dots, or even just open circles on my keyboard. I used to use a, a zero or an O. I can't remember which one. I'll put that in there tree 12 inch diameter 30 inch diameter i'll i'll use one of my circles and just fill that in and if it's multiple trunk trees i'll put down multiple circles and then the x is i try not to use that anymore i still fall back into old habits so because a lot of times it's just me reading the design and and, you know i find out the only reason i really do a design is to work out the quantities and of course it helps me to to work out my thoughts but a lot of times if i didn't need that for the client I'll just go out there and, and I can see the landscape in my mind. Yeah. And I'll go out there and just put what I see in my mind, you know, put the plants where they go and let them plant. But that's very seldom I do that. But it's <laughs> it's a communication, of course, a part, part of the contract. So I have to draw Right. Your crews said just like you're saying, like you can just do quick sketches and work with them on site and they know you well enough at some point that, you know, you can just talk about it where, you know, if you're just doing design, you may have to do a really detailed drawing because you may be handing it off to someone right. that doesn't want to install it right now, but they just want to pay you for the design. So that's, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it really depends on the detail, depends on what kind of company you work for, if you have crews that you work with, or if you have a contractor that you work closely with. So that's, that's kind of cool. And and what you were saying about the X's, that, that's really cool because it shows that it's how important it is that it doesn't matter what your system is, as long as it's clear to you and the person you're giving it to. So X's are fine. As long as they understand your system, that's perfectly fine. I like to see a garden design in my mind before I begin to communicate that vision on paper. Do you do that? I do, actually. My latest garden design, of course, is my own yard. A lot of places I do do that. I look at the the restrictions on the site, the benefits of the site, and I do like to visualize it in my head. And the other thing I love doing, to be honest with you, is I love taking photos and then just putting tracing paper over the photo and drawing quick sketches, either in like a kind of a rough perspective or an elevation. An elevation would be, of course, looking straight on at a flat view of your site, but just looking at it like you're standing in front of it. But perspective drawings are fun because I just take the photo and then I just use the perspective lines in the photo and just kind of quickly. So sometimes I'll do it that way too. So I have it in my brain, but I like to kind of sketch it out in a perspective photograph. And I'm saying saying this, it's very rough. You're exploring the ideas then. Yeah, exactly. So they're in my head. And uh, then I wanted to start playing with the ideas of what they could be. You know, we have a two-story house. Right away, we were taking photos from the second-story window, if you're lucky enough to have a second-story window. Or a drone. Or a drone, exactly. We used to say bird's eye view. And I thought, well, everybody's familiar with a drone now. So I said, I'm going to just start using that Mm. for the drone view on this property. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's great. That's that's great. But yeah, so I, I do visualize a lot of things in my head first. And I do like to look at, you know, I do have Pinterest boards. I do. I mean, that really is a great tool for designers. I like to be able to collect images and keep them all in one place. And I I do, I carry a sketchbook a lot too. So if I'm, I do this often, I'll, I'll be, if I'm thinking of a design for a project and I'm somewhere else, maybe waiting to see the doctor or who knows where, I always get ideas, of course, other places. So I'm always drawing mini plans of things 
at other places in my sketchbook because I, I carry a small sketchbook with me so I can always keep it with me. I do that a lot too. Just quick little sketches are not to scale at all, but just kind of exploring ideas constantly. You know, I'll get design ideas in some of the weirdest places. I'll be just driving down the road and something <laughs> will pop in my mind and say, yeah, that'll work there. That'll, you know, in this particular garden or whatever, I'll be taking a shower and that, something will pop in my mind or laying in the bed, you know, and it just all these ideas will just start popping in your mind. <laughs> Weird places, you know. It's so true. I don't have a sketchbook with me in some of those places. I know. I, I do encourage people, if you feel stuck and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere, to get out and look at other things, like whether it's other people's gardens, whether it's on the internet. And honestly, sometimes I don't even look at gardens. I'll go to the art center. Mm-hmm. Or I'll just go downtown and look at things because you never know what's going to inspire you. Like you said, just driving around. One of my favorite things to do with my daughter, we like to go shopping, and but we're not shopping for things. Mm-hmm. We shop for ideas. And it's kind of our fun thing that we do. She's almost 20 now and she likes to do art. We love just going to like really cool downtown areas or out in the woods or wherever that's where we get all of our ideas, just going through stores and meeting people and eating. And so we call it shopping for ideas. I know myself that I cannot come up with creative ideas sitting at my desk. I have to get out and expose myself to other things or reading. Reading is another great thing that I do. And it's not always garden books. I love garden books, but it's often the, the you know, I'm reading a book on George O'Keefe right now and I'm getting tons of ideas about things. It doesn't have to be garden books. And I strongly feel that way. If you go on my website, you may know this, but I have a book called The Peanut Butter and Jelly Garden. Right. The whole idea of that is you can get your ideas anywhere. In the end, you have to relate it back to the garden, but it doesn't have to start at the garden. It just has to end at the garden. And that's where new ideas come from. It's kind of cool. Just get out of the house. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Can't let you leave that hanging. You've got to tell us a story about an idea you've got on one of your adventures. Oh, great idea. I'm trying to think of one now. (laughs) Besides peanut butter and jelly gardens, what is a recent one that I got? It's not necessarily a recent one, but one of the things that I love looking at for patterns is I love looking at the walls of architecture. So we might be in a a bathroom and there might be a really fun color or tile pattern Mm -hmm. on a wall. And then I'll use that same pattern maybe, or that same color will inspire an entire garden. Like we were in a bathroom once and they, it was a really old one. It was like a fifties pink and it had some really cool tile. And I'm like, this would be an awesome theme for a garden to kind of go with this, this pink color and maybe use this, you know, subway tile as a running bond in a paving pattern instead. Mm-hmm. So I'm often taking those elements from other things like that. And then I'm like, okay, how could I use this idea or at least be inspired by it? So colors in particular, I love getting from other sources, whether it's t-shirts or posters. We love going to anthropology, actually. That's one of the stores we love going into because just looking at their graphics and their clothing and the color combinations gives me so many ideas. There are even styles and patterns, like I'd mentioned before, to put into the garden in some way. Those aren't really specific, but that's how I typically do that. More helpful garden communication techniques 
coming up. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Have you ever thought about, we're looking at the world, standing with our feet on the ground, and we're looking out and we see the landscape, but then we're having to convert that back to a drone view or a bird's eye view, looking down, and that, that change that happens in your mind, is, is that three-dimensional thinking, or have you ever thought about how we convert that, or is that just something that designers take for a granted that everybody should know how to do? I am so glad you brought that up. It's funny because this came up in one of our discussions recently because I posted on Instagram a drone image of our backyard. I was making jokes about how, well, I'm glad to see that we laid it out straight because we did it ourselves. We did it last summer ourselves. We laid out the limestone and the gravel paths and all that ourselves. And like, wow, that's so impressive. And someone made the comment, yeah, isn't that interesting that we design in plan view when we see things from a drone perspective? It's shocking to us Mm -hmm. because we never see it that way. One of the things we talk about in my class is that, and I read this in a book. Oh, it was 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. Have you read those books? The 101 books? No, uh uh-uh. So there's a whole series of books. My favorite is 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. There's ones on like cooking and interior design and fashion and that kind of thing. But in that book, they made a good point. They said, plan view is the way we organize a space. Now, they were talking about architecture, but it relates to landscape design too. Mm -hmm. As designers, it's easier for us to, to organize the space that way. But if you want an emotional connection to a space, you have to pop it up into elevation or perspective for the client and for yourself too as a designer. And as you probably know this too, it's easier to visualize the space if you can make it do a quick sketch and elevation or perspective. When I talk about designing and drawing in different ways, I always say plan view is great, but when you're designing and when you talk to your client, if you want to make a sale, if you can show them a perspective or an elevation, they're going to have more of an emotional connection to something in elevation than they will in in plan view because most people don't understand. They don't know what they're seeing in a plan view. So that is an awesome question because we don't think about it all the time until we see a real landscape in plan view from a drone. We're like, wow, we never look at it that way. So if you if you can learn to draw quick perspectives or elevations, I feel it's a very powerful thing. And not only to sell your design, like I had mentioned, it's also powerful for yourself as a designer. Because when I'm doing any kind of a foundation planting, especially, I always draw it in elevation first. I just, I take a photo of the house and then I put tracing paper over it. Sometimes I use my iPad. I'm just quickly drawn plant forms and create a composition and elevation because it's easier for me to see, okay, how are these plants actually emphasizing the entrance and accentuating the house and all of those things like that. So yeah, we do talk about that quite a bit and how important it is to see it in both dimensions. When you draw those elevations, are you drawing those plants at full size or are you drawing them five years down the road or what is your philosophy on that? I usually draw them at full size. Okay. Except for trees. Trees I don't because most trees will take years to get to their mature height. Trees I usually draw at like half to two thirds, maybe three quarters their size, depending on it. If it's an oak tree, I'm not going to, I typically won't draw it to its full size. Otherwise it would take over the entire drawing. Sure. Shrubs and perennials, I do draw at their 
full size because I just want to make sure that I'm spacing them correctly, mm-hmm. um, plan and in elevation. So I I do draw things at full size for shrubs and perennials for sure. And then small trees like, you know, service berries, crab apples, those types of trees, I guess crepe myrtles for you, I'd either do full size or close to it because they grow pretty quickly. Then you know if they're going to take over the space in five or 10 years or not, because I've, yeah. I've already seen my own trees take over certain spots and I'm like, oh boy, I underestimated that one. <laughs> <laughs> change from a, a sun garden to a shade garden in 10 years or something like that yeah so, what about the person that says they can't draw is there a hope that most can learn the skills needed to communicate their landscape ideas yes you can definitely learn how to draw the cool thing is is that i've been teaching this for so long that i've learned that if you teach these skills in small step people can build their confidence and then they just keep building on each of those skills and all of a sudden you can actually communicate what you're drawing it is possible and it's really awesome how it works another cool thing that i've learned over the years is the important thing is to use the idea of consistency with inconsistencies. The inconsistency is your style. Let me explain that. The consistency is you would use a circle template, for instance, to draw a plant symbol. I always use a plant symbol with pencil Mm -hmm. to draw the initial circle for a plant. It could be a shrub or a tree. When I ink it in, or you can even use pencil again on top of that, but I usually use ink, I will hand ink over it. I will trace the circle and hand ink over it. The original circle is always with a circle template. That's the consistency. The inconsistency is my hand-drawn ink pattern or symbol, whatever I want to do on top of that. Now, my symbol that I draw on top in ink is not going to be perfect. I might not make a perfect circle. I'm probably going to have breaks and lines. That is my style. Once people understand that it's okay for their inconsistency, that layer to be not perfect, they seem to get more confident. They tend to try more things. Actually, their drawings get better and better quicker once they realize it's okay to not be perfect, in quotes. (laughs) There's no such thing as being perfect. And honestly, if you had perfect drawings, they wouldn't be fun. Mm -hmm. I learned this through not only only reading lots of books and seeing lots of great drawings. I took some illustration classes a few years ago. And in those illustration classes, which have nothing to do with landscape design, they stress a lot. What makes a drawing engaging is your inconsistencies, your imperfections. Once we accept that, we're fine. As long as you have the consistency of the guidelines using straight edges, pencils, templates, you can ink over those things. Some of them, sometimes also use ink on hardscapes or with a straight edge. A lot lot of my materials like softscapes, which are, you know, the, the living things, the, the plant materials, I always hand draw over the circle. I will mention one really quick thing. If you hand draw the original circle for a plant symbol, then hand draw again the ink, it'll always look bad. I'll just say that right now. You need to use a template for the circle in the beginning if you want it to be consistent, and then you can hand draw over it. It's really important. If you hand draw both the base circle and you draw hand draw over it, it won't look as good as if you did a template first and then hand drew over it. That's the key to really great drawings that have your personality. It's really awesome, actually, how it works. Whatever scale you're drawing in, you're using that circle correspondingly to the size of the plant's going to grow at maturity. And you, Mm -hmm. you put it down with a pencil and then you lay your vellum on top of that. Do you actually use ink or do you use a Sharpie or... 
I do. Just so you know, when I draw my pencil line, I draw directly on the pencil line with the ink. So I don't put another piece of tracing paper over it or vellum or anything. Okay. And then for the ink, I use all kinds of pens. If you want a variety of line weights, which is really important for clarity, I do use Sharpies, the fine point, the thicker one for larger trees. And then as I work my way down, I have all kinds of pens and from all different brands. They go all the way from like a felt tip pen all the way down to like a 0.008 to 0.05 to 0.03. The thinnest one you can get is a 0.003 pen. Now, depending on the brand that you use, the sizes might be slightly different. The idea is, is when you have your pens, you want very thin to very thick. And yes, I do use pens for my drawings. When you're doing guidelines, I typically use a hard lead pencil and a hard lead pencil. The reason you do that is so the pencil line is very light, so you don't have to erase it. Instead of ink, you could use a soft lead pencil on top of the hard lead pencil. It's soft enough that you can make it really thick or thinner, depending on how hard you press the pencil on it. For those that are feel uncomfortable with pen, you could use a soft pencil instead. I know a lot of people that like to hand draw their entire landscape plan. And they will use a soft pencil for the whole thing. So if there are changes, they can erase it, which makes sense. I can totally see that. Long answer. No, that's a good answer. I'm just having flashbacks to <laughs> smeared drawings and <laughs> I know. filling an ink bottle and <laughs> design. Oh my goodness, the old days when you had to fill, like, thank goodness they have mechanical pens now. You don't have to fill with ink. Yeah, I, I used, and I used to hate when they would get dry. Yeah. And they, they would get clogged. Oh, yeah. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> we don't have to worry about that anymore. I thought I'd discovered something great when I got an electric eraser. Oh, yeah. It was great. I didn't have to spend all that time erasing. <laughs> of course, you'd eat through paper that. then. You know, you, you let it in one spot, it just <laughs> bore a hole right through it. <laughs> I love that. It's true. It's so true, though. Or you shined it up so much that you can't do anything with it. Okay. Well, let's just say you make a mistake with your ink. Is there? Do you have to start over, or how do you do that? If you, if I make a mistake with my ink, I typically just leave it and just hope for the best. I try not to fix it. Or here, let me actually. There's a couple of ways I can do it, and this takes a longer answer. So either I just leave it. So if it's just a minor thing, this happens a lot where my dog will like hit my arm while I'm drawing. I'll be like, I guess I just have to leave it. You know, I don't try to fix it. That's part of your style, right? Right. Basically, it is. And it's funny when I do things for my class. I'll in a video, I'll leave my mistakes in there, and I'll say. This is where my dog hit my arm, but you just have to leave it. Mm -hmm. This is what I suggest when people do hand-drawn drawings is you draw your drawing on tracing paper or vellum in black and white. Then I make a photocopy of it for the client. I never give the client the original. With that said, if you make a mistake mm -hmm. on your vellum or your trace, you could use whiteout if you had to. I always encourage my students not to use a lot of whiteout because the more you use, because it is hard to use ink over the whiteout. For small areas, it's fine, but I wouldn't cover an entire drawing with whiteout because it's really difficult to draw on because I know I'll be photocopying. I would never give a drawing to a client with the whiteout, but you would be making a photocopy of it. That's what I would give to a client. So they would never even see. So if it's major, I would just use whiteout on the original and then give them the copy. Yeah. I would photocopy my hand-drawn pencil drawings too. I went another step. I would take colored pencils and it didn't have to correspond to what the actual plant looked like. 
like. But if you put that colored pencil and filled it in and just showed certain holly would be a certain color, they would think it's the most beautiful design in the world because it had all that color in it. it didn't correspond to any of the actual color of the plant, but they would think, oh, wow, yeah. I don't know if it's because they could distinguish the and understand it better or what, but just adding that little color <laughs> element to it on that photocopy, it was worth the extra five or 10 minutes it took to do that. I know. Isn't that nice? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because when I add color, I also add it on the copy, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. A couple of reasons why. One is if you goof up, you still can make another copy. It just looks nicer on bond paper versus vellum or tracing paper. Yeah. Yeah, adding that little bit of color onto the bond paper or the copy is is a great way to do it. What about color? What are your thoughts on color in, in a design? So, of course, like you had mentioned, color is a great addition to any drawing. My philosophy on color is I never want the color to um, be the main thing that holds your design together. So what I teach is have a really great line or ink drawing. And to me, coloring is just the icing on the cake, is adding that extra bonus so the clients do get excited about it and they can visualize the space even better. But I do truly feel that if you have a really great black and white drawing in the first place, and if you're running behind and you can't color it, you should have really great depth and contrast and clarity with that black and white drawing, number one. But with that, I love color, so don't get me wrong. And one of the things that I teach with color, the best way to unify your color scheme is to limit how many colors you use. I definitely have noticed that when we struggle with color, it's because we use too many of them. So it's really important to limit color choices. For instance, with markers, if you're using markers, I would encourage people, or even pencil, I guess, to try to use less than 10 colors if possible. I know that sounds scary to some people. I will often use only five or six colors. The main reason for that is because it's easier to look at. Your colors look good together, and it's really important to plan them also. So when you pick your five or six or seven colors, you really should be putting them on another piece of paper and making sure they look good together. Limiting your colors, it isn't just a graphics thing. It's also a design thing. If if you're designing, I would hope that the original design also has limited colors. Um, And you're not doing every single color in the rainbow, every material under the sky in your design. So in many ways, graphics reflects design. And hopefully a design is also focused. And then your colors can be focused because of that. That's really important. So you don't want to use all 64 crayons in the Crayola box, right? (laughs) No, even though it is fun, I admit it is fun. One of the things that I do suggest with pencils, buy the big sets. I love buying pencils. Like you were saying, like the big color, the big crayon box is kind of the same thing. I love, but even with the big set, you still want to just grab four or five or six, the ones that actually look right together for that particular design. With marker, this is really important to only use lighter colors. If you use too dark of colors, it's hard to look at, number one. The other thing, though, is it hides all the beautiful drawing that you just created when you Mm -hmm. use a dark color. If you're using markers, I would never, ever suggest buying a set of markers. I would individually buy the markers and make sure they're light colored and they look good together. I'm not like that with pencil. Pencil, you can buy as many pencils as you want because pencils always look good together. (laughs) But markers are one of those things, you know, that markers are not forgiving. I always feel like the, the best advice I can give people is to buy the lightest colors that you can. So you can see your ink work through the the color. Yeah. Yeah. Markers are so much fun. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> colors, mar- pencils are so much fun. <laughs>
we can talk about hoarding now if you want to know. <laughs> hoarding pencils or markers? Yeah, yeah. How do you draw a perfect parallel straight lines? I love answering questions about straight lines and parallel lines. You wouldn't believe this. This is like in the top five questions that I get. I always get questions. I can't draw a straight line. How do I do that? And of course, you just drawing a straight line, of course, you could just use a straight edge, like a, a triangle, a ruler. But a lot of times we are drawing lines that are parallel to each other, either vertically or horizontally. And for those that have not drafted before, the magic of that is using a T-square. And a T-square is a wonderful tool that looks like a T and the top of the T goes along the left or the right side of your table. I guess the bottom of the T goes along horizontally across your entire desk. So it's this wonderful straight edge line that's horizontal on your desk that you can move up and down. And it stays horizontal because of the T on the side of your desk. That creates horizontal lines and you can move it up and down and it's absolutely wonderful. If you're doing measurements down your page, you don't have to do measurements on both sides of the sheet. You just need one measurement on one side and you can draw a line across. The other cool thing you can do with a T-square is pair it with a triangle. And there's lots of different triangles, 90 degree or 45, there's 30, 60, 90 triangles. You put the triangle on the T-square. If you have it on the right angle of 90 degree, you can do parallel vertical lines also. So if you put the triangle on the T-square and move it back and forth, you can not only do a perfectly 90 degree angle, but you can do angles also that are parallel, depending on what side of the triangle that you use. That's kind of a cool trick. I like teaching my students that when they when they first learn that, they're always amazed. If you're struggling with keeping things parallel and keeping things straight, and you are someone that's going to be drawing landscape plans, garden plans a lot, I would always invest in a, a T-square system. I know a lot of tables come with a T-square attached to it. Is it a parallel bar? I think it's called when it's attached. Then have the triangles go with it also. It's magical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> flashbacks again. <laughs> and I just have a little temporary table now that I just put in the closet. Yeah. It has that parallel bar of the T-square attached to it. I don't have a big old drafting table. I just pull it out and put it on my desk or on the kitchen table when I want to use it, which is cool. The board idea, that's a really good way to do that. Another thing I thought of how many different kinds of plant symbols you can create. I don't know what you do, but I don't create different plant symbols for every single plant, but I know a lot of people that do that. Sometimes I'll talk to people about that because they'll, they'll be like, oh my God, you mean I don't have to create 50 different plant symbols for my plant? I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. I don't know if what you do when you create it. just got a graphic on my computer and I just reach over and grab it and pull it and drop it. Oh, that's right. So I can make one for every one of them. And it helps me because when I'm presenting the design to a client, I don't have to follow the line over to where I wrote down what it was, I can know that that symbol, that's what I use for dwarf yopon holly or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It just speeds up the presentation. Right on the computer, I can totally see that, which is nice. I always feel bad when people have to come up with hand-drawn symbols for 20 or 30 plants. And I'm like, oh my. <laughs> Because we just learn it's okay just to do circles if you have to do circles. That's okay. I mean, I don't do just circles. I do more than that, but mm -hmm. but I don't ha I don't usually have more than ten different symbols. I do it by by group instead, like evergreen symbols, deciduous symbols, that kind of thing. All right. Well, what would be an evergreen symbol? So for me, an evergreen symbol for here, of course, we have more needle evergreens. Conifers. Exactly. So I typically use almost like a sun ray, but the rays are very tight around a circle. Mm -hmm. I usually do something like that, or I'll do just kind of a pointy, like lots of U's, but the bottoms of the U's are facing the center of the circle. There's a lot of little points and curves all the way around. I'll do that sometimes. For deciduous trees, 
because especially the canopy ones, I really love doing a thicker line on the outside and then I'll do a thinner line. I like to offset it. I don't do it perfectly on the inside. I like to offset the thinner line just slightly just to make it more interesting. Having different line weight is even more important when you don't have tons of plant mm-hmm. symbols because it's the line weights that tell you where things are within a depth perspective, what's underneath something else. And because, you know, a thinner line would be underneath a thicker line, for instance. Yeah. I like to look at a landscape plan and see a general idea of deciduous versus evergreen plants are on my plan. So that's why I at least have evergreen and deciduous symbols. So I can visually look at it and be like, okay, there's a nice balance because we want to have some evergreens here because otherwise the landscape would be totally empty or not as very interesting in the winter time. That's what I'm using symbols for just so I can kind of see that balance visually when I'm looking at it. If I need more symbols, then I'll do that if there's any reason, but I typically don't do a, a symbol per species mm-hmm. just because it gets complicated and it's interesting like i can totally see it on the computer because i'm sure the computer can make very different symbols which makes it so much easier as the person that grades a lot of papers when my students even though i encourage them not to do individual plants per species sometimes they will do that as the person grading the plan i struggle with are their symbols different enough sometimes i can't differentiate plants because their symbols aren't unique enough for me to be able to figure out like okay they're saying that this is a a rhododendron. Mm -hmm. But when I go to the key, I see three other symbols that look so much similar to that rhododendron. So is that a rhododendron or is that, or is that something else? So I always put myself in the client's position and I'm like, if I'm confused, would a client be confused about what that plant is? When you're hand drawing, it's more difficult because you have to be very, very specific. Where like you said on the computer, it's actually nice because computer are very consistent. So you don't have to worry about that guessing game. If you're doing it by hand, I always tell my students, just label them because you don't ever want to have anybody guessing. Now, with that said, though, if it's a small plan, like a perennial border, and it only has 10 plants, and by all means, I tell them, you can use a key and you can use different plant symbols if you want for the different plants. My concern is when it gets up to like 50 different plants on a plan, and then you can't figure out. I've seen people like Roy Diblick's plans. They use little symbols like triangles. Like They're beyond... (laughs) (laughs) The things we're talking about today with circles and proposed lines, they're actually using symbols. Mm -hmm. And I can see why they're doing that because like triangles and squares and stars, because their planting plans get so complicated. And when you're layering so many things and they're all so tight, you need to have some other system. Their systems are so different because of that. And this goes back to what I said, use whatever system makes sense for you and the client. As long as the client understands what you're doing and it works for you, then that's what you should do. Lisa, you talked about design and teaching design, and I know you have a course where you actually teach people how to design their own landscapes. Tell us about that. My website, habergardenworkshop.com, has lots of free information on landscape design and graphics. I finally had the opportunity to design a online course, so get more in-depth information. And my course that I'm teaching is focused on the graphics of landscape design. I've been teaching at a university for over 10 years now, and I've realized through my classes there, because I teach graphics and I also teach design, how much more confident my students are when they learn design when they've had a graphics class prior. Eventually, I'll be teaching other classes online for the world. Right now, I started a graphics class and it focuses 
really on giving people confidence on how to communicate their ideas or garden designs uh, visually. We learn everything from how to give depth, change up line weights in this class. And then we build on those skills and we learn how to draw. I actually use a garden room as my way to organize. This isn't a design class. I use design terminology to structure it. I teach people how to draw the floor of the garden room. And then we learn how to draw the walls, which the walls would be the plants, could be fences, painting walls. It could be all kinds of things. Then we learn how to draw garden ceilings, which is, you know, pergolas, umbrellas, uh, canopies of trees, learn about how to draw furniture, learn how to color everything in marker and pencil. Finale is I teach everybody how to do quick perspective drawings. The idea is we build up these skills in the beginning with how to draw lines and proper line weights. And we keep using those skills over and over and over again. So by the time you finish, you have these great toolbox of skills that you can use. The class is called Garden Graphics Toolkit, and it's really giving everyone the skills, gives them the confidence to be able to draw their ideas that they have in their heads. It's in-depth. I teach it in January. So if you're interested in something like that, definitely go to my website, papergardenworkshop.com and jump on the waiting list. I also am developing a smaller class more on the tools that we use to draw our gardens because I get a lot of questions about what markers do I use? What pens? How do I draw a straight line? So I'll be creating a shorter, like one week type class where people can just jump in and learn what kind of tools to use also. The other thing that's going to be really cool is I'm developing a more consistent newsletter format. People can sign up for my newsletter now. In the past, I've only sent it out maybe once a month. I'm rethinking the whole thing because a lot of people want information on how to design and how to do graphics. My newsletter will be this hopefully fun, quirky, uh, resourceful newsletter that will give really short bits of information every two weeks on a design tip, a graphics tip, and then have links to some of my posts that I've written in the last 10 years. I have lots of great posts that hopefully help people with their designs, their garden designs and their graphics. I'll be starting that up here soon. Hopefully September will be my first formal one in this new format. Those are the the cool things that I've been teaching and offering for everybody. Everything from free to if someone wants to do a deep dive into graphics, that would be a full-blown course. You can find me at papergardenworkshop.com. This has been episode 22, communicating your garden ideas on paper with Lisa Nunnemaker on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Lisa. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.